Our scripture reading today is from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Stacy. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you all. Um, as Stacy said, my name's Russ, and uh, I am glad to be here. I love whenever I have the opportunity to come and preach here at uh, this beautiful, beautiful room to this beautiful congregation. Uh, this, one of the things that happens when you, uh, when you preach um, is you, you plan out the passages way in advance and, and then you preach, uh, you know, as, as they come up. And I've known that I was preaching on this passage for, for months now. Um, and uh, it, 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 if, it, if, it, if I were just preaching, like choosing a sermon topic, if, if Scott or Stacy said, just pick what you want to preach on, um, probably would not have chosen this passage. That being said, one of the joys of working through uh, texts, working through these seven letters, is I get the opportunity to preach on things that I may not have gravitated toward, but are there in the passage and part of the whole counsel of God's Word. And this morning, uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is um, Satan. We're going to talk about the, the devil. And I've preached a number of times over the years uh, about spiritual forces and darkness and that sort of thing. And one of the things that's pretty common whenever I do that uh, is that I, I feel just kind of a, a sort of, a, a, maybe the, the word would be a kind of an oppression. Uh, I feel a little bit of an attack uh, from the enemy. I find myself uh, getting irritable or uh, just punchy and edgy. I was short with my wife last night and had to you know, apologize and you know, just, I know, I know that when we get into subjects like this, um, that one, there is a real devil, there is a real spiritual darkness, um, and that talking about Satan 
is not something Satan particularly enjoys. And so, um, so it is with pleasure that I stand here this morning and get to talk about what the synagogue of Satan is all about. So uh, with that being said, uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us through your word. I pray that you would give us eyes to see what it is that you are showing us through your word about ourselves, about our calling, about the evil one, about the evil that is in the world, about the spiritual realm. And um, Lord, anchor us to the truth uh, of who you are. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This is a show of hands questions. Has anybody here ever worked detasseling corn? Oh, there's one, a couple hands. A couple hands going up. So I grew up in Indiana, in a town that is just covered in cornfields. And the most popular summer job that a kid could have, and you could get this job when you were 11, 12 years old, uh, is detasseling corn. And almost all of us did this uh, in, in, in the town that I grew up in. And what it is, is you go to the local Farm Bureau co-op and you fill out this little half-page application and your parent signs a waiver saying if you get your hand cut off, nobody's going to sue. And uh, then a farmer will call you and put you on this crew and, you, and they have this really kind of crazy cool looking spider-like tractor that has all these little platforms and you stand on a platform and it drives down the rows through the cornfield and you have a row that you're assigned to and you just pull the tassels off of every stalk of corn as you go by and that was the job and so almost everybody I knew that that I went to school with had done this job Almost everybody I knew who had done this job had really no idea what we were doing. Just what the, just pull the tassel, okay, I can do that. But why were we doing this? We didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know things like this. I'm about to blow your mind with corn. We didn't know that the tassel is the male flower on the corn stalk that has the pollen in it. And that that pollen then shakes down onto the female flower, which is the ear of corn, onto the silk. And each strand of silk is connected to a kernel of corn. Did you know that? That's what happens. And so that pollen falls down onto that silk and the combination of that germinates and it makes the particular kind of seed that grows on that ear of corn. Kind of crazy. Well, we didn't really know anything about that. We didn't know about cell division. We didn't know about the germination process. We didn't really understand anything about how the farmers were trying to create a hybrid seed that would be drought resistant, disease resistant, something that they would plant in the field and it would get a stronger and stronger and stronger type of seed so they would have better yield every year, all these things. We didn't know that. We really didn't know. We didn't understand that we were in a complex horticultural science. And we were participating in that. Why am I telling you about detasseling in a passage of scripture like this? The reason is because though we were participating in this process, horticultural science, most of us could neither comprehend it uh, or see it, but we were a part of it. From the planning of 
the kernel in the earth to the harvest of the crop, there was a mystery in what would happen, but there was a mystery even for the most expert farmer there in terms of what was happening. Jesus said, said it this way. He said in, in Mark 6, he said, the kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and then he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows, but he doesn't know how. We participate in the process, even though there are many things in the process that we cannot see and we cannot understand. And I would say that this is true about the spiritual realm, is that there's more going on in this world than we can see in the spiritual realm. And when it comes to the spiritual world, we're, we're a lot like kids detasseling corn. Jesus says, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to be a part of this work. He calls us to be his witnesses in the world. He calls us to love and serve one another. He calls us to cling to the gospel, to resist temptation, to proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But even as we seek to do all of these things, there's still more going on in us, through us, and around us than we know. And this is where I want to direct our focus as we look at today's passage. And as, because what I want to do is I want to walk through the text. And along the way, I want to stop and I want to notice what's happening in the spiritual realm and apply it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take this in basically two parts. The first part is we're going to look at the opposition that the church in Philadelphia was facing. And then we're going to look at the progress that the church in Philadelphia was making. And by extension, the opposition we face and the progress we make. So that's where it is that we're going to focus. Opposition, progress. Incidentally, uh, if you're somebody who's skeptical about the spiritual realm, you're going to have a problem with this passage simply because the voice dictating this letter is the risen Jesus. And so even the existence of this letter is a communication between the risen Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and a church full of people. So come along with me and, and, and let's, let's get into this. The, little background, the, the, the city of Philadelphia, uh, which means the city of brotherly love, was, was uh, situated about 30 miles southeast of a town called Sardis, and Philadelphia sat on a fault line, which meant that it was pretty regular for there to be... Um, earthquakes, sometimes major earthquakes that would just kind of make them have to start over again in a lot of ways, but, but they kept rebuilding there. And the reason they kept rebuilding there is because Philadelphia was located in a really strategic location uh, because it was, it was at a place where the borders of Mysia and Lydia and Phrygia, three regions, came together, making Philadelphia a kind of a gateway to the east for the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was all about spreading the empire as far as it could. And so Philadelphia was one of those cities that through it, the Roman Empire would spread to these different regions. And so Philadelphia was established as a kind of a uh, Roman missionary outpost for the spread of Greek culture. So it was, it was kind of a missionary town, and the, and, the, and the export of the missionary town was Hellenism, was Greek culture. And this is something that Philadelphia then shares with Nashville, because 
one of Philadelphia's key exports was culture, and the same goes for our city here, that we are a culture-exporting place. Well, the church then in Philadelphia, so that's the city, the church in Philadelphia seems to have embraced this outward-facing posture of their city, being missionary-minded as well, only not about the spread of Greek culture, but about the spread of the gospel. And our text indicates that they were persecuted for doing this, but it's savvy. The church in Philadelphia understood that as this place is the gateway to the east, it's the gateway to the east, not just for Greek culture, but also for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's what they were going to do. They were persecuted for it, but they didn't abandon Christ in the process. That's what we read in the letter in verse 10. This is one of the only letters where there's not a rebuke given. This is mostly encouragement and, um, and uh, prophecy about what's coming. This church was small. They had little power. And, you know, when it comes to um, a church having influence in the city, every church is small and has little power uh, when it comes to that. When it comes to a church on its own thinking that it can just um, shape the city by itself, it's, every church is small. Uh, but this church was faithful and they endured persecution in the process, but they still talked about Christ and they didn't despair. One point of application for us in this is that believers in a culture-making and culture-exporting city, we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is to influence relationally and professionally what is produced and sent out into the world. And we can't see all of the ways that that influence is gonna work itself out in the lives of others, but we do have that influence nonetheless. And it's in just about every vocation you can imagine that we have the opportunity to be exporting our faith through our interactions with people, through the kind of work that we do, through the ways that we lead. It's one of the reasons why at our church we emphasize so much the importance of the relationship between faith and work. It's one of the reasons why we founded and launched uh, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work is because we believe that this relationship is important. We believe that 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 investing in the shaping of our city is something that Christians are called to do. How do we professionally and relationally invest in and influence what's, what's produced and sent out into the world? The big umbrella answer to that question is the great command. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the, that's the big umbrella answer to that question. But what that looks like in our work it looks like this. Here's some of, some of the ways that looks. It looks like having high standards for excellence. It looks like concern for people over outcomes, building for the common good, serving with humility, staying in the mix when things get hard, caring more about the fame of Christ than the elevation of a brand. It looks like caring about the ethical impact of the work we do and the systems we work in. It looks like treating people fairly and with dignity. We work to be good stewards of the planet. We tell the truth. We believe the best. 
We extend the benefit of the doubt. We seek to build up. We oppose what tears down. We fight injustice. We contend for beauty and truth and goodness. This, this is how we shape culture through our work. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the exact ministry of the church in Philadelphia, but what we do know is that they were exporters of the gospel. They were proclaimers. They were on the mission to tell people about Jesus in a city that traded in exporting culture. And we know that though they endured persecution, they persisted in bearing witness to Christ. And Christ promised them that he would keep them in their hour of trial. Now the pragmatic question might be, why wouldn't Jesus look at their suffering and say, actually what I want you to do is just walk it back a little bit, lay low, stop talking about me, and uh, lest any other harm befall you. The reason Jesus didn't tell them that was because Christians have no greater mission in the world than to bear witness to Christ. We have no greater mission in the world than that, to talk about Jesus. Our highest calling is to love God and to be open about it. It's to be Christians in public. Christians are called to be exporters of the gospel. So there's encouragement here for people who are, it's costing them something to talk about Jesus in their town. But this letter is not simply a letter of encouragement uh, to keep them going during hard times. When you step back, a cursory read of this letter is telling us that there's more going on in the spiritual realm than these believers could know. This whole letter is basically Jesus saying to a faithful, persecuted people, hang on, hang on. This is gonna last, but it only lasts a while. And it's all driving to something unimaginably grand and victorious and glorious. So hold on. And then Jesus, in describing the opposition that they're facing, he uses this term, the synagogue of Satan. It shows up actually in two of these seven letters, this term, the synagogue of Satan. And I want us to unpack that. What's going on with that? Notice that the opposition they face is more than mere human resistance. And this is true for us still, right? Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These things are real. And so what is the synagogue of Satan? As Westerners, we might hear the term synagogue of Satan and regard it as not much more than just an insult, right? It's just a put down. It's Jesus getting in a, a zinger. But it's not that because that wasn't Jesus' way in fact, what, what this is, is Jesus is actually using this term as a theological assessment. 
it's, it, it's, it's a statement that's more about Satan than it is about people. Uh, but Jesus is using very precise language here. He's not just going for an insult. He's describing something real. So follow me here because I need you to come with me on this, on this little journey of unpacking this phrase. Apparently, what was happening from the text is that the persecution that these Christians faced came at least in part through leaders of a local synagogue. And Jesus says these persecutors are not true Jews and that they will one day bow in deference to these Christians and they will say, in effect, you were right and we were wrong. So wrong about what specifically? Wrong about the identity of Jesus. Jesus as the Messiah. That's what this is about. In fact, that's what all of this is about. The persecution is about who Jesus is. When the gospel first started going out through the Roman Empire, when the Apostle Paul would go on his missionary journeys, every time he would enter a new town or a new city, he would always go to the same place first. Where would he go? He would go to the synagogue, right? That was the first place he would go. Why? Why would the Apostle Paul go to the synagogue first? The reason is because the Jewish people were expecting the coming Messiah. And what is the message of the gospel? The Messiah has come. You're expecting the Messiah? He has come. The Savior of the world who would come from Eve to crush the serpent's head. The descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed. The king who would reign on David's throne forever. The message of the gospel is that Jesus is that Messiah. Christianity wasn't a new religion. It was a fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. The synagogue of Satan then were those who when presented with Christ as their long-awaited Messiah not only rejected him but actively persecuted those who accepted him in an effort to destroy Christianity, actively persecuting those who accept Jesus in an effort to destroy Christianity is at its essence satanic work. Jesus is saying, in other words, any person's mission to destroy faith in him is a mission that person shares with Satan. Can I say that? Satan's mission was then and still remains an effort to conceal or deny the lordship of Jesus and to dissuade people from believing in his saving work. That's what Satan's about. His main work is to convince people that Jesus was not the Messiah, that he's not the Lord. Satan even tried to do that with Jesus himself when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He tried to persuade him to go another way to live a different mission. Now, I know that right now we're kind of entering into uh, some tricky waters because as Western American enlightened people, uh, we can be skeptical 
of the spiritual realm of things like demons and angels and dark forces and principalities and things like that. Also, as current Western people, we have a tendency to really kind of only see the world the way our generation sees it and then to erroneously think that everybody's always seen the world that way and they haven't. Our skepticism towards spiritual things is uh, a minority position historically. And yet it's, it's, it's what we have and it's the devil's work. One of the cunning ways that the devil does his work, one of the cunning ways that he works to conceal or deny the lordship of Jesus and dissuade people from believing in him is by concealing his own existence. Another way is by making himself seem to us like, at best, a cartoon character. C.S. Lewis talked about this in uh, the Screwtape Letters. If you've not read the Screwtape Letters, you should, because it's very insightful and amazing. But the premise of Screwtape Letters is there are a series of letters written by an elder demon to a younger demon coaching him on how to keep the person he's assigned to from believing in Jesus. And so here's one of the things that he says. He says, the fact that, quote, devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. Any faint suspicion of your existence, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. It's the old pitchfork and bifurcated tail trick, right? If the devil can conjure an image of himself that no enlightened person can accept, then the enlightened person will deny the devil's existence altogether. If it's the red tights, pitchfork, and horns image, and I think, well, I can't accept that, then maybe I won't accept that he exists at all. The truth is, human beings historically, in every nation, tribe that has ever known, have had some instinctive belief in the spiritual realm, something beyond us, something in the shadows, something in the heavens, something that we, by our very existence, are tied to. Do you know who did not wave off the existence of spiritual forces? Jesus. Jesus did not wave off the existence of spiritual forces. Here are just a few ways that Jesus routinely engaged with the reality of a spiritual realm. He prayed. He prayed aloud to the Father. He taught about the kingdom of God, not once, not twice, all the time. Read a gospel, it's everywhere. Gospel of Luke, countless paragraphs begin with the kingdom of God is like. He taught about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. Jesus talked about hell. Jesus cast out demons. Many times he cast out demons. And for our topic, the coup d'etat, is Jesus conversed 
with Satan. He had had conversations with the devil. When he was tempted in the wilderness, it was 40 days and 40 nights, he talks with the devil about the word of God. So Jesus routinely acknowledged the spiritual realm. He spoke of real evil and a real evil one. Satan's mission is not to get us to love him more than we love Jesus. His mission is more simple than that. It's just to get us to love and put our ultimate hope in anything besides Jesus. His work is done. That's the mission. To get us to put our love and ultimate hope in anything other than Jesus, in money, sex, power, reputation, success, empty spirituality, self-improvement, fitness, winning arguments, pleasure. Add your own here, right? Remember that this term, synagogue of Satan, Jesus is the one who came up with it. Jesus is the one who used it. He's the one speaking in these letters. It's his term. And what that means is here we have this sober, important reminder that Jesus is zealous for his identity to be known and to be proclaimed without, without obstruction. He's not playing around with this. It matters to him. He's strong on this. And we, the church, we're working in his field. And more is happening here than we can see. That's the opposition. There's something satanic happening. And specifically what's happening that's satanic is there are forces at work to not only deny the lordship of Christ, but to destroy the church so that the gospel won't go out into the world. What's the progress? It's that nothing in the world will be able to stop the advancement of the gospel. We get into these passages, you see him talking about the key of David and this open door. Let's talk about what those things are here briefly. When we look at the progress of the church, throughout this passage, Jesus is talking about this key of David, this open door which is open and cannot be shut. The key of David refers to access to God's eternal kingdom. One would come from David's line who would reign on David's throne forever, and Jesus is that ruler, and the book of Revelation is driving hard to that point, that God's eternal kingdom, in God's eternal kingdom, Christ sits on the throne. And not only is Jesus the Lord of that coming kingdom, but that kingdom is described at the end of this letter, the end of this book. And it's described in this way, as a place where God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And there's an open door to that kingdom. And that's a reference to entry 
into God's eternal kingdom. And here's where our call to public faith comes in. You know, public faith is one of our values as a church, that we would be Christians in public. In the New Testament, the image of an open door almost always refers to the work of bearing witness to Christ for as long as we draw breath. Jesus says he is the door. He's the door that stands open. He describes himself this this way in John chapter 10, verses seven through nine, as the door that all must pass through in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's saying the door is open through which people enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It stands open and not even Satan can shut it. But it's not merely a door that believers pass through. It's also a door Christians are called to tell other people about, as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what these believers in Philadelphia are doing, even though it's costing them. It's not just a call, though, that belongs to the believers in Philadelphia. This belongs to all Christians everywhere. How do we know this? We know this because of Jesus' great commission that he gave to the church. What did he call us to do? He called us to... Bear witness to him, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's the call to go through the open door and to tell others about the open door. What progress came from churches like the one in Philadelphia? The other churches you read about in the book of Acts, what progress came from all of that? You can't find a church in the New Testament. Uh, You'll be hard-pressed to, to find one that wasn't persecuted for its very existence. What progress can they point to? We're sitting in it. The progress of these churches is that the gospel has made its way around the world and down through time, and here we sit. And it hasn't been snuffed out. It hasn't been destroyed. It prevails. Though persecuted and oppressed, these early churches kept proclaiming the gospel and it's made its way here to this room. The gospel's made its way around the world and it's called many to faith through the witness of God's people, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We work in the fields of the Lord. And he will produce a harvest. Though waking and sleeping, we don't really understand how. But the seed grows. The seed grows. As sure as I stand before you in this room today, the seed grows. And we're called to participate in this. In ways we cannot fully comprehend, God uses our voices to pollinate the world with the gospel in ways that bear fruit. There's a real battle happening. It's real. Hold tight to the gospel, Jesus says, so that no one may seize your crown, and he will hold us. And there will be at the end a great celestial ceremony Something mysterious to us now in which Jesus will descend with the new Jerusalem and he will be given a new name, 
a name we will not know until that day, and order and peace and joy will be restored permanently forever. And in the meantime, God in his providence and his wisdom has called us to work in this field. Knowing the work is important, even if we only know in part. And he brings a harvest. He does. Christians were never meant to be the gospel's destination. The gospel wasn't meant to just come to you. It was meant to come to you and then to pass through you. Bearing witness to Christ is an ethical matter. It's truth-telling. The gospel isn't ours to keep. We have to give it away. And God works. He works through our seemingly small witness in the world, and he does more than we can see. He pollinates the world through the voices of a few courageous voices who proclaim Christ, and sometimes even through voices who don't realize they're proclaiming Christ. Christ brings glory to his name in a myriad of ways. We can't always see how. We don't always understand all that's happening on a spiritual level, but God is at work. Let me close with a short story about one way this is true in my own life. One of the reasons why I'm standing here is because God worked through the voices of people I've never met and will never know. When my mom was, before she was married, she was living in New York City. And uh, she was walking through a park in New York City. We call it Central Park. It could have been any of them, but I forget which one. But she was walking through a park, and there was a person on a, on a bench singing um, Paul Simon's uh, Mrs. Robinson. I guess Simon and Garfunkel. And she hears, Jesus loves you more than you can know which is part of the refrain of that song, right? And she said it lodged in her heart as a question. Does he? And it bugged her to the point that she felt in the ensuing years that she needed to address the question of whether that was true or not. And that process, there was more going on, but that was part of it, right? And that process led to her coming to faith, which led to me coming to faith. And I look at that and I think, a stranger on a park bench singing Paul Simon in New York City, I owe part of my life to that, to the Lord working through that. We don't know. We don't know how the Lord is working, but he's working in big ways and small ways, in ways we don't understand. He is making seeds grow. He sets before us a call to bear witness to him. And he tells us there is a door that is open and nobody can shut it. And through that door is eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus. 
If you have not, will you pass through that door? Is the Lord using these words this morning to bear fruit in you, the fruit of faith? And if you already have passed through that door, will you tell others about it? God will do the heavy part. This is our call. May it also be our legacy. Pray with me.